For the reading of the Word of God, I have an Old Testament portion and a New Testament portion. Uh, Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43. And then we will go to Mark chapter 2. Isaiah 43 is one of those portions of the Word of God where the Lord declares His greatness, His power, and His might in a way that is, is, is rare in comparison with other places, so compact and so filled with the glory of the Lord. How can we read these things without being moved at the wonder and the beauty and the glory and the power of our God? What he speaks of himself, it is true. So starting at 16, Isaiah 43 16. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep, for, for burnt offerings, or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money, or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Amen. Our focus especially ought to be on 25. I am he who blots out transgressions for my own sake. And now, Mark chapter 2 starting at verse 1, reading 1 through 12. 
This is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. That ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. It was made for us, for our edification, that we might know the Lord Jesus, that we might know the triune God's truth. At this time, very briefly, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises that you have made. Promises about your word, that you would preserve it, that it would be inspired, that it would be handed down from generation to generation. We also thank you for the promises that you have given to be with it when it, was, when it is read and preached. And we pray that you would then be with us as we have read it. May you place these truths in our hearts and we ask that we would see how these things are relevant to us in our day and age that we would know christ our savior and all of his glory in jesus name we pray amen so if you were to read mark chapter one and then mark chapter two you see that the Lord Jesus goes to Capernaum and, in a sense, sets up shop in his ministry there. We see that in chapter 1. And then for a time, he goes elsewhere and preaches in another place or in some other places. But in Mark chapter 2, he returns to Capernaum. It may be the case that he was living there even permanently for a time. Or it may be that he had set up shop as far as his ministry went. So he goes to that place. 
And you see, as the Lord Jesus preaches, and especially as he performs signs and wonders, his popularity grows. So you can surely understand that with the Lord Jesus' return to Capernaum, the, the rumor mill gets out and people say, he has come back. Let us go. Maybe some of them let us go and listen to him preach. And surely some let us go and see if he can perform a sign or a wonder. Well, there is this crowded house that is the result of his popularity going. So you must imagine a house, probably small by comparison with uh, how many houses in our day, yet able to, to function in the ways that are needed. And there are many, many guests. Many come to hear the Lord Jesus. So many that it is as if there were standing room only and the standing room goes out the door and there are those who are not only at the door but in front of the door and for those who are desperate to see him and desperate to be changed by him they are not sure what to do and so there is this one Verses 3 through 5, let down through the roof and forgiven. So there are these four men, friends of one man who is a paralytic, and they carry him. And when they are not able to go through the front door, because there are far too many people, what they do is they go to the top of the house and they do something which sounds crazy for us in our context. The idea of someone opening up uh, a, a roof in our time, that would be awful. But in their time, it was a little bit easier to do, not, not something that was ordinarily done. Understand that it was common in that time to have uh, guests upon the roof so it could be done. There was a way for them to put a certain uh, uh, bunch of twigs and branches and also a form of mud, which was very, very hard so that it could secure people. And they had a way of putting tile of a form on that roof, but it was still much more accessible, we would see, than our roofs in this day and age. These four men are so dedicated to helping their friend, that they begin to open the roof. Now, that must have been a strange circumstance. For anyone who preaches for any amount of time, they become accustomed to certain distractions. I've been in circumstances where I'm in the midst of preaching and a fire engine goes by, or an ambulance goes by, and you think, well, I'll just try and compete with this. And who can compete with that? Sometimes there are uh, children, and they begin to make a fuss. And so there's that distraction. Well, 
little bit more equipped to equip uh, to, to compete with uh, those circumstances indeed. What a delight to have children within the worship auditorium. I wouldn't speak against that. Let us let us have children upon children in here. But imagine that. What a distraction. And how could you overcome that? Here, in the midst of preaching, seeking to declare the kingdom of God, there is someone coming through the roof, through the ceiling, and being brought down, brought down by his four friends. Tell you what, you would be blessed if you had four friends like that. You would be mightily blessed if you have one friend like that, one who sticks that close to you. So they remove the roof and they, they, they lower the paralytic man down. And Jesus Christ sees their faith and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now just pause for a moment and think about that. Jesus could have said, Man. He could have said, Sir. But here he is showing some intimacy with this man, friendship and kindness to this man. And he says, son, and he says, your sins are forgiven. This is extraordinary. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having the Lord Jesus speak that directly to you? Son, Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Now, some would see that as simply a bonus. Because some would see the reason to go to Jesus is for the healing of the body. But Jesus desires to heal the whole man, to heal the whole woman. And so he deals with the spiritual issue the spiritual problem. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And is it not excellent the way that the Lord Jesus loves to provoke the religious leaders? He provokes the scribes by saying this. The scribes were sitting there and they questioned in their hearts. And they asked, is this man able to do this? Is it not the case that the only one who can forgive sins is God himself? Well, they questioned in their hearts and they were correct in their doctrine. As we went to the book of Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. This is God's prerogative to say, your sins are forgiven. There are many groups in our day who would, some of which would, claim themselves to be Christians. And others would say, well, we're not Christians, but we do believe the Bible. And they would say, well, nowhere in the Bible does 
Jesus say these next three words, I am God. That's true. He does not say that, that directly. But the fact is, constantly, he's referring to it and he's hinting at it. He does not say it as explicitly as that, but he says it so constantly, implicitly. And this is one of those places, I would dare say, that as wrong and as, as, as evil, really, as these scribes are. These scribes, now understand this is a profession of men who, who write the Word of God. They didn't have a printing press. They would write one letter at a time. As problematic as they are, they understood more than many people in our day, even those who knock on your door to tell you such things. They understood that oh so subtly the Lord Jesus is proclaiming his divinity. And so Jesus, knowing their hearts, he's able to say and respond to them. And perceiving in his spirit that they question within themselves, he says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now think about that. Jesus has said, your sins are forgiven, which only God can do. They are right about that. But Jesus is reading their hearts. He's reading their thoughts. With the, with the Bible in mind, they, they, they think with their hearts. And Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. What is easier to say... Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, take up your bed and walk. These people could have answered that question. They could, could they not have? You can't ask yourself that question. Which is easier? Well, in one sense, they're both quite easy to say. But what of the effect, and which one is easier to verify? Imagine someone says to another person, your sins are forgiven. Well, how do you verify that? There's a whole church, a very large church, with all kinds of ornamental things, as smells and bells, and they actually do that. They have one whom they call a priest. We would disagree with having any priest for the last 2,000 years because the Lord Jesus is the last priest. But there are priests who say, your sins are forgiven. Only Jesus, only God can do that. And how can you verify that? You sit in a dark room with someone behind the screen and he tells you that? Well, how can you verify that? Well, Jesus can verify that because he can show that he can very easily forgive sins. And he can very easily tell someone to pick up his bed and walk. 
Is it possible, though, for a man to forgive sins? No, it's not. Is it possible for a man to simply command someone else to take up his bed and walk? No, it's not. You see, these things are impossible with man. Which one is harder for God? Well, in a sense, they're both easy for God. Jesus can say, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus can say, take up your bed and walk. And Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And Jesus has the power to verify in the face of unbelievers that he has the power to do that because this man got up and this man walked. And so we see in verse 12 that these people are amazed. He rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What an understatement. They have listened to scribes. They have listened to Pharisees. And they have sought to declare what the Word of God is and what it says. And they have sought to legitimize their ministry by referring to experts. And Jesus refers to no expert. He preaches as the expert. He preaches as the one who truly knows because he is the ultimate expert, because he is the writer of the Word of God. And he is able to declare glorious truths, and he is able to legitimize them by signs and wonders. The contrast is very great. Those who refer to other men and their authority Versus Jesus, who has no authority other than himself and only has his father as authority insofar as he has taken on human nature. Well, what ought we to do with these things? We ought to meditate upon verse uh, 9 which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, that is the, the paralytic, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk. Notice that Jesus says, which is easier to say, which is easier to say. It is easy for Jesus to say, take up your bed and walk, and to make this man do it. And it is easy for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. But what it would take for the Son to be able to say such a simple thing is none other than his going to the cross which was a great hardship. The Lord Jesus went to the cross and he suffered body and soul 
and his soul was in anguish as he got closer, as the hours were getting closer and closer. And on the cross, the Lord Jesus experienced great trauma. He experienced abandonment, in a sense, by the Father. He experienced no longer the grace and the love of the Father, which he had known for all of eternity. He says, why, oh why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far away from my groaning? Jesus has the power to say that, to say what he says to this man because of the difficult work of the cross. The glory of Jesus is not shown in what many of the crowds would think. His ability to do signs and wonders. The glory of Jesus is that he can go to the cross and that he could be the husband to the church that he could lay down his life for her. And so that he would look at his bride, Israel, to look at the church in all of her flaws, in all of her scars and all of her warts, in all of her filth of her sin. And with his blood, he might cleanse her and wash her so that he might present to the Father a bride who is blameless. This is extraordinary. So on the power of the cross that the Lord Jesus would go to soon after that, he was able to say, your sins be forgiven you. These things are impossible with man, but these things are possible with God. All things are possible with the Father, and all things are possible for the Son of God, because he is divine. Well, what I am about to say ought in no way to imply that the paralytic was paralyzed because of a specific sin. The text does not give that indication. Maybe he was, maybe he was not. We do not know. We must be very, very careful anyways to, to, to take particular sins and try and draw the inferences to, per, to certain hardships. In one sense, that's what Job's friends as counselors did. He, he undergoes the loss of his children and his property and his health and his wealth and all of these things. And what do Job's uh, counselors do? They say, well, there must be some particular sin that is secret. Something that is known to you and known to God, but you will not confess it. We must be very careful about drawing X and Y lines between these things. And then, in another sense, we could say that 
all sin or all hardship, whether it be wars or broken families, broken marriages and health issues, these really are those things that stem from the sin of the first Adam. So we must have these things in, in, in mind. One, not to be too specific about sin X and hardship Y, but at the same time, understanding that Adam's first sin did bring about this, and we certainly sin as well. But while I make those qualifications, let me just encourage you to see that sin is paralyzing. Sin is paralyzing. What does sin promise you? Sin promises you freedom. And sin promises you liberation. It, it promises you happiness and joy. This is why you do the things you do. This is why you have sinned in the way you have. It is because you look at the temptation and you think, this will give me happiness, joy, and pleasure. And it's really just a replaying of what happened with Adam and Eve at the garden. They had heard what the Lord had said, not to eat of this tree. And Satan comes and he says, you realize that there's a conspiracy against you, if I may paraphrase. God knows that you'll be like him, and you'll know the difference between good and evil. And so what happens is Adam and Eve begin to look at it and almost in a sense lust after the fruit, it is good for looking at. It is very nice to behold. And then she reaches out and she partakes and she eats in direct violation of what the Lord had said. When we reach out for the sinful fruit which is offered to us, at that moment, we love that thing more than we love the Lord. We are drawn in and we are tempted. We are tantalized by it. Notice what Satan had offered. You'll have freedom and you can judge for yourself. And you don't need to be in subjection to the one who's holding you back. That is what we think in our own minds. When we are tempted to sin, when we see the things that we see, and our eyes hold the glance. Well, the scribes were paralyzed, were they not? The scribes were paralyzed. They were paralyzed by their sin, paralyzed by their love for themselves, paralyzed by their expertise, paralyzed by the accolades of men. 
They did not rejoice. And they would not rejoice in this man's healing. Just think about that for a moment. Now, understand first, your sins are forgiven. That's what's said first. But to legitimize that, there's no sense or no indication that any of the scribes or Pharisees rejoiced in the healing of a man. I would hope that when we see someone healed, though we might have some differences, be they theological or political or whatever, come what may, when God does an extraordinary thing, we say, thanks be to the Lord. But these men, these men who were paralyzed by their sin and further paralyzed by the words of the Lord Jesus, your sins are forgiven, are then further paralyzed by him legitimizing what he said. These men are paralyzed. And in a sense, the whole city is paralyzed. Because this city where Jesus is becoming popular, this city that flocks to hear him and fills up the house and fills up the doorway, and we trust fills up the entryway and way past the entryway to the doorway. They're not really coming to hear of the kingdom. Many of them are not coming to hear the glorious things that the Lord is doing. In Matthew eleven twenty three, Jesus is denouncing this city and that city, this city and that city. And is it not interesting what the Lord Jesus says? Matthew chapter eleven twenty three, Jesus says, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah are in a better place than you, or would have been in a better place, all things being equal. This is extraordinary. Now the man is not paralyzed, and his friends are not paralyzed. They're set free, and they are blessed because of it. But the whole city of Capernaum, in a sense, is paralyzed by sin. Sin has paralyzed you. Do you not know the Lord Jesus? Do you not know him as your Savior? If you do not know the Lord Jesus, if you have not trusted in him, then you are spiritually as paralyzed as the man was physically. And you're as spiritually paralyzed as the scribes of the city and all of Capernaum itself. But if you know the Lord Jesus, then you know what it is to be set free, 
to be set free from the curse of sin and the punishment of sin and the barriers to fellowship that you have. In a sense, though you may not have the Lord Jesus literally speak to you and say, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. If you have trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can believe it as if he had. For the Lord Jesus not only calls paralyzed to walk, he calls the dead to be raised from their deadness, to be brought back to life, to be transported out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. And therefore, if you know the Lord Jesus and you know the liberating power that you have been raised to walk not after the wicked ways of this world, but you have been made to walk after the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, then why would you turn back? And why would you turn to the paralyzing effects of sin? And why would you seek that which promises freedom but causes you to end in paralysis? Imagine the absurdity of this man saying, you know what I really miss? I miss being carried around by my friends. That is exactly what we do if we are tempted by sin. You know what else would be absurd? To be drawn out of slavery as the Hebrews were from Egypt with all of its hard bondage to see the glorious humiliation of Egypt to cross the Red Sea, and then to say, you know what we miss? We miss the onions, we miss the leeks, and a few other things. This is absurd. It is absurd to long for Egypt, as it is to long to be carried around by friends and be a paralytic once again. Brothers and sisters, Look to the Lord Jesus and let nothing come between you and him. For whatever you put before him is an idol. It is idolatry. Look to him and find your satisfaction in him. Because he is one who promises. And what he delivers is far greater than his promises. You see how different that is from your sin. It promises such extraordinary things. It overpromises and underdelivers. In sense, the Lord Jesus underpromises as great as his promises are. But he delivers for eternity unspeakable glories. Things that we have not heard things that we have not seen, 
things that have not entered into the minds of men. This is what awaits the children of God. Let us look to the Lord Jesus and have nothing blocking the way. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we delight. We delight in what the Lord Jesus has done for this man, that he has made the lame to walk. But how much more so do we delight in those things which have eternal consequences? For this man surely has gone the way of all the earth, and he has died nearly 2,000 years ago. But he has been saved because the Lord Jesus has applied to him the redemption that would soon come because of the cross. And we thank you for the way that the cross reaches back, sometimes one year, sometimes two and three years, but the effects of the cross even reach back thousands of years to believers of the old covenant. And as we delight in that, we also delight that the effects of the cross apply to those thousands of years later, even unto us. And we thank you that by faith in Christ and union with him in his cross and resurrection, we do thank you that we can have what he had, the forgiveness of sins to the glory of the triune God. May your name be praised in Jesus' name. Amen.